We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome if you are online. We're glad that you're here. Welcome as well if you're here here in person. And uh, we hope you had a Merry Christmas celebration with family and friends and are now here to worship with us this morning and learn the Word. All right, I'm going to talk this morning uh, with you from a number of passages of Scripture about the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth, the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ, and actually we should call it the virgin conception and birth to be more uh, complete about it. And my argument here today, if you would argue with me, uh, is that uh, the teaching of the virgin birth is essential to the Christian faith. It is an essential to the Christian faith. You might not have often thought about it that way, but it is indeed an essential part of the Christian faith. And I'll try to explain how, that we, how we look at that, uh, say, for somebody who's new to the faith or doesn't understand the doctrine of the virgin birth. But we want to think about that this morning, the Christian teaching on this, which is that Mary was a true virgin that the Spirit worked a miracle in conceiving the child Jesus in her womb, and that Jesus was born as a human baby boy in Bethlehem, that he was born without sin, that this was an actual historical event, not a made-up fairy tale or legend. We read of the virgin birth in the text of Scripture, and we believe it. Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 tell us this. We read that on Friday night. And also Luke 1, 34 through 37 makes that very clear that that is the case. But there are also unchristian or non-Christian teachings on the virgin birth. These include outright denials of it. You know, people say, well, you know, this is how the atheist responds. That can't happen. So it didn't happen, they say. Um, these, it's funny because they take other things that can't happen as truth, like, you know, everything came from nothing. Well, that can't happen, but they believe that. So uh, we won't be shy to point out their inconsistencies, will we? Um, but, uh, you know, because people deny supernaturalism, they say nothing supernatural can happen, but we do not as believers. We have seen uh, testimony of that in the scriptures, eyewitness testimony, and you, in fact, have experienced one great supernatural event in your life, and that is regeneration. Uh, we're not looking for, you know, uh, little supernatural events uh, that people talk about, little miracles here or there, or whatever, but you know of one in your life that was beyond nature, beyond natural. Uh, the the teaching of the virgin birth is not a mythical religious thought. Um, it's not that um, Mary herself was born in some miraculous way. Catholic teaching is that uh, she was kept free from sin by what's called the immaculate conception, 
Many Protestants aren't aware that the Immaculate Conception relates to Mary's birth, not to Jesus' birth. Uh, and the, the Christian, or the Catholic rather, teaching is that uh, Mary was kept from sin and thus her son was kept from sin uh, because she is the co-redemptrix uh, with Jesus in their theology. That is heresy. I hate to even say the words, but to make you aware of it I think is necessary. The kind of, um, the kind of honor that is ascribed to Mary can be really explained by nothing short of worship in their system. We do not worship Mary. She was a vehicle through which God uh, brought his son into the world. Um, There are also some useless speculations about the virgin birth that eliminate any organic connection between Mary and Jesus. Uh, That's like, you know, God created uh, some human zygote and implanted it into Mary and it's really got no connection to Mary or uh, that, well, you know, Jesus couldn't have a father because it's only the father that's the sinner and he's the one that passes the sin to the, to the child. That is a false teaching. Um, sorry to say, but that's what it is. Um, both mother and father are equally sinful and contribute to the sinfulness of their child. I think that view under, uh, misunderstands the uh, idea of imputed sin. Imputed sin comes from Adam directly to all of us, not through our parents. We are imputed the sin of Adam, and you say, uh, what does that mean? That means that we're reckoned as sinners because we're part of Adam's sinful race. That imputation is direct. Now, you have another sin problem, which is you inherited sin nature from your mother and father. Okay? In fact, you have a third sin problem, which is you committed acts of sin. Jesus died for you to solve all three of those problems, to take away your sin and your, act, your actions, to deal with your sin nature, to make you a new creature in Christ, and to take the imputation of Adam's sin away from you and onto himself, so that he became sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he took those upon himself. But that that notion of the imputation of Adam's sin has sometimes led people to say, well, it's the man who passes the sinful seed to the the child, but it's not actually the case. It's the mother and the father who are responsible for the sinful nature of their child. Now, I'm going to admit here, frankly, the how of... Jesus coming into the race and the genetic material and all of that is left something of a mystery, isn't it? It's because the virgin conception and birth is a miracle. I can't, I can't take it down to a test tube and reproduce it and show you exactly how it worked and explain it in naturalistic terms because it was not a merely natural event. Right? It was a supernatural event. It's like trying to explain, you know, just exactly how God held the water back in the Red Sea or how Jesus was resurrected from the dead or how Jesus created food enough for 5,000 men plus women and children out of nearly nothing or how God created the universe out of nothing with the mere power of his word. You can't explain those in nature. They are supernatural events. So, We can't explain it naturalistically. At some point, our ability to scientifically explain it has to break down. 
And so we need to be careful not to go beyond the scriptural teaching, lest we say either too much about the details or perhaps end up with a Christ that is either less than human or less than God. And that's a very important element to the teaching of the virgin birth. Remember that. Jesus is truly and fully and 100% God and truly and fully and 100% man at the same time. The really the only, could, could we say the only difference between Jesus and us is that he's sinless in his humanity, in his humanity. Of course, in his deity, there's a whole lot of difference. But. So let's think about how important this is to the Christian faith. I believe that it is so important that we could adapt one of Paul's sayings in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. We could say this, if Christ was not born of a virgin, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. We would be liars about God if Christ were not born of a virgin while we affirmed that he was. The whole system of Christianity would be futile, but in fact, again, to adapt Paul's uh, adversative there in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Jesus was resurrected, but in fact, he was born of a virgin, so our faith is not useless or futile. So first of all, I have several points. Let me see how many. Uh, five, I think here, five points as to the importance of the virgin birth. It's essential, first of all, to the person of Christ, to the person of Christ, for Christ's personhood, um, for his sinlessness, for his human nature, and for his divine nature. All this is under the heading of being essential to his person. Okay, So for, for, for him to be a person... When we say God is a person, that doesn't mean that he's a human. It means that he has characteristics that are, uh, include personality, personhood, that he has intelligence and will and morals and decision-making capability and those sorts of things that are integral to being a person. Remember, there are divine persons, three of them in one. And there are angelic persons. There are human persons. We usually think of a person, a a people, you know, a human, but that's, that's too limited. But in normal human conception, the, the embryo is a new person. Have you ever asked yourself, where do people, where, where do people come from anyway? How, how does that work? Um, some teach, and I believe this is a very wrong teaching, but some teach that there are, is a kind of uh, a bank of souls somewhere up there where God takes one of those souls and implants it into the embryo at some point, conception or some later point or whatever. Um, I don't believe that is as true at all because the soul of a person is sinful. Yes, every person when they're born. So God did not create a sinful soul and place it into an, an embryo that was otherwise innocent but rather somehow, and again, this escapes my uh, full uh, ability to explain, he, uh, yeah, he, when, uh, when he arranged for a man and a woman to bear a child, he arranged that that conception would cause not only the beginning of a physical process, but also of the soul of the person. And so the, the soulishness, of mother and father are passed to the 
children, just like the bodiness, the physicality of the mother and father are passed to the uh, child as well. And so a brand new person is created the instant that conception occurs. This is why it's so crucial for us, this whole matter of abortion, because there is a human person who is being killed at any stage in abortion, whether the abortion is for any reason whatsoever. The person is dying. There is death there. By the way, pray for the Supreme Court justices as they pass as they ponder this case that they uh, heard just a couple of weeks ago, that God would move them to be bold and be strong. We know that some of them are not going to want to change anything because they're depraved sinners with no, no light of, in that nature, in that area of no common grace. But some of them could be swayed, and I pray that God will do that, and you can join us in that prayer. Well, uh, so when, when a person is created at conception, there is his or her own personality, desires, abilities, the will, the spirit, and, and all the rest is formed uh, in that moment of time. But if the same procedure had been followed in Christ, then the divine person of the Godhead would have, been, would have added an ex- another person to his existing personhood. Okay, So mother plus father equals new person, But in this case, we don't have a father because we're not creating a new person. We're just adding human nature to the existing divine person. And so this avoids, this this makes it so that Christ's personhood is, is unitary. He's not two people, two persons, a divine person and a human person in some kind of co location in one body. It's one, one divine God man, one God man in one person. So in the virgin birth, there was no creation of a new person, but instead a second person of the Godhead took on human nature and body in order to be a single person with both a divine nature and a human nature, two natures in one person. That's hard to understand, I suppose, but yet we do have a miniature experience that's something like that. You have a sin nature, and you have the gift of the divine nature poured out upon you in regeneration, yes? So you actually are a person with two kind of natures as well, a tendency toward sin and a tendency toward righteousness. So you know something of this. This is a a different thing, of course, altogether. Christ had a tendency toward humanness and a tendency toward divineness, two natures in one person. But this also was, this, this virgin birth and conception was essential for Christ's sinlessness, still under the heading of his person as a person. The, the kind of person that moms and dads produce is always, without exception, a sinful person. Because mom and dad are both sinners, all they can produce is a sinner. So there's no notion here that the children stand on the shoulders of their parents and become somehow better than them. They may, in in the secular sense, you know what I'm saying, have a better standard of living or achieve more education or be smarter or something like that, but not in terms of their sin. Uh, That's kind of a tragic thing, by the way, if you produce a more sophisticated sinner or a smarter sinner than yourself. uh, You haven't done much, have you? Yeah, you want to uh, trust the Lord to help 
children to be raised up to be holy people, regardless of whatever their maybe educational or socioeconomic status ends up being. Um, But the child Emmanuel was not produced in the normal way with a a father and a mother. There was, in fact, no new person formed, which we talked about above. Rather, an impersonal, impersonal human nature was added to the divine person of Christ. So you didn't have the addition of a sinful person. So the Spirit's work of the virgin birth ensured that Jesus, therefore, had no sin. Now, I could go a little farther with that. He had to be protected somehow from the sinfulness of Mary as well to the shock and, and uh, chagrin of our Catholic friends who believe that Mary had no sin, she did have sin. In fact, she recognized God as her Savior. She said that in the Magnificat. She needed a Savior just like the rest of us do and will and did and all. But um, the, the, the Spirit's work ensured that he was kept clean, pure, free from any sin whatsoever. The imputed sin the uh, sin nature, and of course, he did not commit any sin, acts of sin. And for, uh, for Christ's human nature, uh, we, this is essential, the virgin birth. In this sense, the virgin birth not only protects Christ from uh, gaining a second person or from touching sin, but also it makes sure that he is a real human, really connected to the human race. I mean, Mary did not bear a child like in some sci-fi movie that was not of human composition, you know, from Mars or something like that, some alien, okay? This is not a weird kind of thing like that. She had a normal baby boy, and uh, his human connection to the human race was was true. It was complete. It was was actual. Uh, He was a real human child who will eventually rule the world, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Jesus also was promised to be a son of David, a real son of David. And you can see that if you look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Matthew's genealogy is the genealogy of which parent? You remember? Joseph. Adopted parent, of course, if you will. And Luke's genealogy is a different genealogy, so therefore it has to be the genealogy of Mary. Okay, there's no contradiction between the two genealogies. We've gone through that a number of times over the years. If you want to go over that again, I'm happy to do that. But that is clearly what is going on there. Um, so he's promised to be the son of David, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, Romans 1, 3, and 4, which we'll look at a little bit later this morning. He has a real human nature and the kingly line of David, and so he has some genetic connection to the human race, which he received through Mary. And then the virgin birth is essential to the person of Christ because it's essential to his divine nature. Okay, so the God side of this equation, we just looked at the Mary side of it, if you will, the human side, but the God side of this was Jesus was not only promised to be the son of David, but also the Son of the Most High. He's promised to be God with us, Emmanuel. Two humans, Joseph and Mary, if they had a child, could not produce something divine. God had to be involved in that. 
Not incidentally, by the way, those to those of us who are born again is this fact that Jesus was promised to be God with us. And at the end of his earthly ministry, what did he say to the disciples? He said, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is always and ever God with us. Isn't that nice? And that confidence building, and it does fulfill the promise of God in the Old Testament. So without the virgin birth, you'd have none of these essential ingredients. His divine person, his human person, his sinlessness, and in fact, just his personhood apart from everything else. You'd have none of those without the virgin birth. Secondly, secondly, the virgin birth is essential to the work of Christ. Okay? It's essential to the person of Christ, but it's also essential to the work of Christ. We need a man who can die for other men to take their penalty for them. But he has to be a sinless man, and he has to be able to suffer the required penalty of sin. Those two statements are loaded with truth. Is it not reasonable to expect that someone has to be sinless to pay the sins of others? Is it also not reasonable to expect that someone has to be able to die to pay the penalty for sins, which is death? I mean, the wages of sin is death. The incarnation not only allowed Christ to die for sinners because he was human, but also it allowed him to experience human life personally to reveal a sinless human existence to the human race, to demonstrate the dignity of human life, and to reveal God, as it says in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Let me just mention or unpack that for another moment. Because of the virgin birth, we have a God-man, man who can die, God who can... Uh, I'm looking for a word. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, who can take, who can experience the wrath that is necessary against sin. A mere man cannot do that. What, what, happens, what happens to a mere human if they have to experience the wrath of God against sin? How long does that process take? You are punished in hell if you don't come to Christ, for how long? Eternally. It takes, it, it, let me say it takes. You can't think of infinity. You can't think of eternity. That's too long of a time to be punished for sin because it's never done. This is the, this is the tragedy of people who die without Christ. You can't understand it even. I mean, you, you can, but you can't. When you think about it, the, the punishment for an infinite affront to the will of God, which your sin is, is an eternal punishment because you are a finite person. But the God-man could die and also, this is the word I was looking for, absorb the punishment of Almighty God against his sin in a short span of a few hours upon a cross, and as he laid in that tomb, dead, to prove that he paid for the sins of the world. So that in the space of, say, 9 a.m. upon the cross, 
And I would say a little before that as well because he was receiving those torturous beatings. But let's just say from when he went on the cross until 3 o'clock in the afternoon and shortly thereafter when the sun had grown dark and God was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus, he was absorbing not only the punishment of sin for one human being, he was absorbing the punishment of sin for an infinity of human beings, as it were, because there's no number of human beings that could conceivably come to God and ask forgiveness who would not be received as if there was some shortage in the work of Christ. There was no shortage in the work of Christ. It's infinitely sufficient. So that within a space of several hours, he was able to absorb the infinite punishment of what is in an incalculable number, number of human beings. And we don't put a numerical ultimately a numerical analysis on this because sin is not a numerical thing. He didn't die for you know, 1,777,000 sins. He died for the infinite demerit of sin of all humans, of even one human. And in that six-hour span, let's say, he paid that infinite eternal price. You have to have a God-man to do that because a mere man could not absorb the punishment of God for our sin in a finite amount of time. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's just a marvel to me. It just, just for, for us, for, for all of us listening, watching this today, and for those that will come along later, it just, this idea demands that we come to Christ because you cannot think that you are going to address your own sin problem yourself. Or like you're going to do good works in order to overcome your sin. That's not, that's not possible. I mean, I suppose you could say it's theoretically possible if you could do an infinite, an infinite number of good works, but you can't and you won't and you don't desire to anyways if you're not in Christ. And so the virgin birth is essential to not only the person of Christ, but also the work of Christ. Virgin birth is also essential to the integrity of God's prophetic word. If somebody comes along, in other words, and says, look, the virgin birth is a myth, it didn't happen, then they're basically saying, throw out your Bible. Okay, just do the translation for them and say, so you're saying for, to me to throw out my Bible, right? And, and even some liberal Christian denominations say this sort of thing. Look, if you are going to do that, and you profess to be a, a, some kind of church person, a kind of Christian kind of person, and you're saying there's no virgin birth, then you might as well just take your Bible and throw it out and stop pretending to be a Christian church, please, okay? Change the name on the sign so that it doesn't say First Baptist, blah, 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 whatever. Just say, you know, First Social Club of whatever city, because that's all it is. It's a, you know, First Club Exploring Morality or something like that. That's all that it is. It's not a church when somebody denies the word like this. Isaiah 7.14 had to be fulfilled, had to be fulfilled, and it was. The context of that prophecy, by the way, is like this. The king of Judah, Ahaz, was confronted with an enemy alliance of Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, in 734 B.C. They planned to take Judah and to kill Ahaz. That's real nice. But that's what people do, I guess. Um, this posed a threat to what? 
It didn't pose a threat only to Ahaz. Here's where you have to understand. It's not just that there was a guy who was under threat by some other kings. That happens all the time. The guy who was under threat was the representative of the Davidic covenant. And God will not have his Davidic covenant messed with. And I'll leave it like that. You don't mess with God and his Davidic covenant. So this posed a threat to the Davidic line. The murder of the current Davidic king and an attempt to wipe out the Davidic line of kings. God was going to take none of that, so he promised Ahaz through Isaiah that the coalition's evil plans would never come to fruition. And God wished to confirm that promise to King Ahaz and to the people of Judah with a miraculous sign. So he tells Isaiah, you know, tell him, ask for a sign. In false piety, Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, and God used this, and he gave the sign himself. The sign had two parts. The parts were to answer the twofold threat against Ahaz and the Davidic line. Okay, and I'm indebted to uh, Dr. Bruce Compton for his explanation, clear explanation of this I learned in school years ago, and I very much appreciate it. This two-part threat to Ahaz personally and to the Davidic line is answered in the prophecy of the virgin birth. The first part of the sign was to answer the threat against the Davidic line. God promised that Emmanuel would be born of a virgin, This Davidic messianic king, as we know from other scriptures, thus guarantees the Davidic line would never be extinguished. You know, even if you get rid of Ahaz, now this is not what was going to happen, but even if you did, even if you, say, had a curse on the line of David after Jeconiah, which was the case, God was still able to raise up seed to David. He could do that from the very stones, couldn't he? He could raise up you know, people to praise God out of those stones. But uh, he could raise up children of Abraham. He could raise up a child of David. And in fact, he did through the virgin birth. But the second part of the sign has to do with not a virgin birth, but with a period of time, a length of time, a short length of time, the length of time that it takes a young child to mature to the uh, level of understanding good and evil. The young child was exemplified, exampled in Emmanuel. And so the two, this is where the, the prophecy kind of gets confusing. You think, well, how is it? Was the virgin child born in Isaiah's day or later? And if he was born later, how did this relate to that time? Well, it's because it's a two-part prophecy. The part about the Davidic line was fulfilled when Mary had Jesus. The part about Ahaz was fulfilled then and there with him when God said, look, take that child, it's going to be born of this virgin. By the time that child would be able to tell the good from the evil, like any child, I don't know how old that is, but let's say it's two years old, okay? By the time, by that span of two years, in that span of time, the threat against you will have evaporated. That's the second part of the prophecy. In less than that amount of time, the coalition would be destroyed, and in fact, that's what happened. By 732, another, this is 732 BC, so two years later, another kingdom, Assyria, had eliminated Syria as a threat and mostly done so with the northern kingdom of Israel as well. They finished the job 10 years later with northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Remember, 
That was the year that northern ten tribes were carried off into captivity, and that whole area was decimated. So the virgin birth of Christ, therefore, is a bold act of God that guarantees the Davidic covenant will have a king on the Davidic line forever. It is a bold statement in which God says to his enemies that they will never carry out what Syria and Israel wanted to do to the Davidic line and the Davidic king. The virgin birth underscores the promise of God to Ahaz that God's word would come true. If God can cause a virgin to conceive and bear a son, then he can cause earthly kingdoms to disappear, and that's what he did. God's word is sure. Do not doubt it, my friends. Do not doubt it at all. And and let me just say this too. You know, in all the huff and puff of the world against the nation of Israel, and of all the desire some nations have to just shove Israel into the Mediterranean Sea and to see them destroyed, there is one Israelite they cannot touch. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God at this very hour, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, at which time he will come and he will reign over Israel in Jerusalem and over the whole world. They cannot push him into the sea. He is fixed. He was born and ever lives, not only to make intercession for us, but to rule in that future kingdom of God. I have two more points, but I have no more time. So we're going to pause, and we'll have to pick this up another time. But I hope that's an encouragement to you. It is greatly an encouragement to me to know that God's promises are good and that his plan to work this virgin birth uh, is, is amazing in what it accomplishes in this, in this realm of Christian theology. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has taught us about these matters and allows theologians to gather up these little nuggets of truth and that we can put them together in a way that explains about the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the the promise of uh, the word of God that it's good and uh, cannot be uh, broken, that your word is infallible. And Lord, we thank you for that. And though, Lord, we may not fully understand the virgin birth, and some deny the virgin birth, we know that it is true and it is a core part of our hope that we have a Savior who is both a man who can die and God who can absorb the punishment of our sin. We thank you for this. May he be extolled in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.